0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: Now, if you'll open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25, this afternoon we're in the fourth message on the light source of the tabernacle, and this is the singular lampstand with seven lights. It stood on the south side of the interior of the tabernacle next to a wall of wooden boards overlaid with polished solid uh, or polished gold. The north and south walls of the tabernacle were lined with gold. East and west, as you went in, uh, are two curtains, you might say. One separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And the other is the curtain by which you enter, the, the door that is a fabric curtain. And so they don't reflect any light. But these, this lampstand stands against that, that south wall and reflects off of it back across to the other side to the north wall. And that lights up the entire interior of the tabernacle. And it is by that light that the priest did all of his work. I want to show you, we'll show you the lampstand once again and You recognize this as the prototype of the Jewish menorah that we see today, and in previous messages we've noted that the lampstand is one of the most recognizable symbols of the Jewish religion, and certainly in the tabernacle it had its prominent prominent place as it represented the Trinity. There is a picture of God the Father in this, and of Jesus Christ his Son, and also of the Holy Spirit. And in both Old and New Testaments, there are frequent references to light, such as God is light. And light refers to understanding. Light is the illumination of spiritual darkness. And in 1 Thessalonians, it says that God's people are not children of darkness, but we are children of the light. Well, although light was needed in the tabernacle to light up all of the dark spaces so, of course, the priest could see. That light there uh, in, in, in that building or in that tent is not incidental because in his design, God said no other light is to be used except this light of the candlestick. And God did that because that's a lesson to us. It's a lesson that God himself is the light, there is no other light. Jesus Christ is the light that lightens the world. And this is why John says that every person that comes to, uh, every person is lit by, that comes to Christ, has been lit by that glorious light of Jesus Christ. Now, in our text of Exodus 25, we're going to read just three verses of description. We've read the others before, and so you can review those at another time at your leisure. Exodus 25, verse number 31. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the candlestick out of one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Then verse number 37, And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. Now, before leaving that verse, just by, by way of maybe some interest or uh, just to show you that there's nothing, it seems, in the word of God that escapes some type of controversy, uh, there is controversy about this verse where some believe that in the tabernacle there were seven separate lampstands. But I don't think that's right but rather there are seven lights or seven bowls of oil with a wick in each one, and these are all on one lampstand, and they make this this light that lightens up the tabernacle. And that'll be important for um, maybe a couple of uh, statements that I'll make just a little bit later. Now, I'd like to just go back and review just a, a moment the first point of our outline. Can't spend much time here because we do need to move on. But in our first point, we talked about how the lampstand symbolizes the gospel of Christ. So point number one is the illuminating gospel, the light of Christ. Now, when John wrote that statement that Jesus Christ lightens every man who comes into the world, he meant that in reference to the gospel. That it is by the gospel of Christ that we know God. It's through the gospel we are spiritually illuminated to see the blackness of our sin. That we realize who we are as we see ourselves in that light. And through the gospel we turn from our darkness into the glorious light of Christ. And it's by believing the gospel that we're justified from our sins. Uh, faith is the vehicle by which we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But we're always careful to note that it's not faith itself that saves us, but it's the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who justifies and saves us from our sins. And so in the gospel, the person of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection are the elements that represent his saving work. So John can say that Christ is the light. He means the gospel by which we're saved. Now, the second part of the outline is about light that comes through the church. The church is the body of Christ, and through the church we enjoy union with Christ. So, number two is the illuminating church, which is our union with Christ. Now, in the last message, we tied the church into the symbolism of the lampstand by reading from Revelation chapter 1, and there in Revelation 1 is the vision that John had where he saw Christ and Christ was surrounded by seven golden candlesticks and was seen holding seven stars in his hand. And Christ explained that symbolism by saying the seven candlesticks represent seven churches. These are seven churches that were in Asia Minor that received letters from Christ that were dictated to John. And then Jesus said the seven stars, those are pastors of churches that were to receive these letters and then to convey them to their congregation. Then we went into Ephesians chapter 5, where it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And Paul said that we are members of Christ's body through this church relationship. And he says, we are a part of his flesh and of his bones. And of course, that is all a connection to the symbolism of marriage, where we are flesh and bone, Uh, husband and wife are flesh and bone of each other. And then Ephesians also says that the church together is unified in Christ. And I pointed out the significance of believing in the local visible church rather than a universal invisible church, because the local church is the only way that God's people can be unified. I mean, it's obvious that A universal, invisible church is never unified. It's made up of great diversity and much different opinions and different people and different doctrines that uh, people hold. And then we went on to discuss the importance of church membership. And I stated that it is the expectation, it was the expectation for all New Testament saints, and this is something that we see uh, throughout the New Testament, is the expectation that every Christian would be a functioning member of the Lord's church. So that was letter A on the listening sheet. Every Christian should be a member of the church. That's not optional for New Testament Christians because it's through the church that Christ does His work. His church is His body. And so not to be a member of the church is to be separated from His body. Now, when we talk about it in that way, I'm not really speaking of a salvation issue. This is a sanctification issue, and that is that you can't grow in your Christian life without membership and commitment to the New Testament church. Now, the relationship of membership and sanctification was set just as soon as the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. There were 120 members of the church then and then the Spirit descended, and on that day there was an explosive wave of conversions as 3,000 people were saved, and then the church on that day grew by that 3,000. And what did they do? Well, the Scripture says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. So there on Pentecost, the church is working together together, And you remember how they loved one another and how they pooled all of their resources to make sure that every need was met. And they chose deacons for daily administration. The apostles were the pastors of that church. And they received the ordinances that the Lord gave the church baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so through these things, they were being sanctified in the work of Christ. Well, I want to continue that discussion about the importance of church membership and the last time, we covered two reasons that we need to be a part of the Lord's Church. I'll mention these first two again. Uh, the first is truth. In First Timothy 3.15, we read that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That Christ committed his truth to the church. The church is the guardian of truth. And the foundation of truth, according to Ephesians 2.20, is the apostle's doctrine that was received from Christ... And then the written word that we get from the prophets of the Old Testament. And this is the reason that on the day of Pentecost and Acts, we see people continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines. It's a very simple proposition. That doctrine is the doctrine of Christ. That doctrine is what supports the church. It's the same doctrines once delivered to the saints. And those are the doctrines that we are to honor and to teach in our church today. This is what Jude said, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And so this is what we do in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time that we come together to preach God's word, we are contending for the faith of Christ, that doctrine that was first delivered to the apostles. Now, where the church then is not prominent, the truth gains no ground. In fact, we need very strong, committed churches Or else truth is soon downgraded until there is no truth at all. You look at the liberal churches today. When when do you see a liberal church persecuted? A liberal church never fears for its freedom. They don't fear that anybody's going to take their freedom away. The liberal church is, well, maybe in my description, is a silk purse made from a sow's ear. It's a pig wallowing in the mire. But if you want to keep truth then you get in a church that teaches truth and stands by that truth. Amen. Now, the next reason the church is good for us is the ordinances. Tonight, we're going to observe one of the ordinances. The ordinances were given to the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the ordinances. Baptism is commanded. Fellowship in the Supper is commanded. And those two ordinances are not to be practiced anywhere except in the context of the church. Only the church has the authority for them. That's not my rule. That's the rule of Scripture. And to take these two out of the church, baptism or Lord's Supper, take those outside of the church just to practice them any way that someone pleases, that is unsanctioned by Scripture. And not only unsanctioned, but it's an ungodly thing for people to do. Well, I need to go on. Uh, I have some more reasons that we need to be members of the church. Uh, The point is that illumination comes through the unity of the church in Jesus Christ. Now, the third reason that we need to be members of the church is for identification. Membership in the church identifies you with God's people. Last week in our discussion about baptism, we said baptism is the entrance into the church Baptism is our public identification with Christ as we're symbolically associated with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that, that scripture refers to putting on Christ like a soldier puts on his uniform. The uniform identifies him as to what branch of service that he's in. And so, since baptism is a church ordinance, when a person is baptized, he is identified with Christ. And also, of course, coming into the church, the church itself identifies him as as a believer in Christ. That baptism brings him in as a response to his faith in Jesus Christ. And then coming into the church identifies him as a Christian. Now, you think of the golden lampstand again, there isn't one light on this lampstand, there are seven lights. And in the scriptures, seven is a number of completion. Sometimes it stands for perfection. And I said we we might look at this again after talking about whether this is seven golden lampstands that are in one uh, in the tabernacle or is it one with seven lights. And I think we destroy the picture by saying that it's seven separate lights. It needs to be one lampstand with seven lights on it. That shows us that when we become a member of the church, we put our light on that lampstand. So we join other lights and we say, I am a part of Christ. I am a member of his flesh and of his bones. Now, listen to Christ as he tells us how visible we are as part of him when we are part of his church. In Matthew 5, 14, ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Now there, Jesus is talking about the church, and he says, this is how visible you are. In the church, you're like a city that sits on a hill. At night, you, you approach a, a city, and you can see the lights up on the hill. The, the city is visible for miles. Well, we live in a very dark world, and so as God's people, we've got to put our light... Uh, In with the other lights to shine is that city on the hill, and that's the way that Christ is seen. Now, if you are the single light, if you're out there by yourself, you're not visible. You may be a flicker, but you're not a beacon. You're not a shining beacon if you're trying to go it alone without the church. And then you think about what influence do you have when you're not identified with Christ and his church. Whenever I meet someone who says they're a believer, my next question is, where do you go to church? What congregation are you a member of? And you know, often I get back and answer I don't go to church. Or strangely enough, the question seems embarrassing because the person can't think. He 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 can't name a church that he even attends regularly, much less to be a member of. You see, I think that every Christian knows this that when you become a believer in Christ, a true believer would be very, very uncomfortable not to be a part of the Lord's church. So usually what I do is when a, when a person tells me this, if they have no conviction about being a, a part of the Lord's church and they say, I am a Christian, I don't, I don't really count them as a true believer. I, I don't see how a person can, can approach this without, uh, without any conviction if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ because a believer does not want to wander on his own. A believer has in his heart to fellowship. Now, you see it all throughout the Scriptures in the New Testament. There's fellowship, fellowship all the time. What's going on in the fellowship of the body? So God expects us to be a part of the New Testament church. We don't want to be like lost sheep that are out there on our own. So through the church, you get identification. Through the church, you can be influential for Christ. Or if I say it another way, you won't be influential with him without the church, Simply for this reason, the Holy Spirit won't let you be influential. He won't let you work in a way that's different than what God ordained. Christ sent his Holy Spirit to who? Who did the Holy Spirit descend on on the day of Pentecost? On the church. He came to the church and empowered it for his work. Now, the fourth reason that we need the church and we ought to be members of it is for growth. You need to be in a local church for your personal growth. And if you think for a minute, Christians that you know that are not members of the church or perhaps they've left the church or they've fallen out of the church and such, do you notice any growth in their lives? Do they look more like Christ when they're outside of the church? Or do they look less like Christ outside of the church? I've never met one who forsook membership of the church, left the church, whatever reason it might be, whose life shines for Christ. They aren't a reflection of His saving grace. They leave the church, and as soon as a person does this, he's on the downhill slide, because that's not what God intended for Christians to do. Now, let me just give you a, one of a, perhaps uh, maybe a hundred examples that I could give. I've been in this business for a long time. But I remember um, a family... And they were members here. They were saved here. They attended church faithfully for for a long time, had their kids in Sunday school, and they were in church every week. But as their kids grew up, their allegiance to the church became shaky. Kids wanted to do other things on Sunday, so they wanted to play ball on Sunday, I think cheerleading and those kinds of things. And they had other activities that they wanted to do on Sundays, and soon they stopped going to church and the kids were growing up and they were getting involved in everything else that there was to do. And not long after leaving the church, this family began to lose their kids. They lost them to the world. And so they came back and I was talking with them and they were complaining about how are we going to get our kids straightened up? Now, by this time, it was a little bit too late to do anything with them because they were getting older, but they came back to the church to talk to me about it, and, and they said, we need to get back in church, and we need to get our kids going back on the right path. And they were alarmed at this point, but they realized that it just was too late. They'd lost their kids because they didn't keep them in church, and very soon they fell out of church again. And that's a story that can be told a thousand times. And there are others that I can tell you about that people that were faithful and then they stopped and they ended up with things like teenage pregnancies and drug use. And I'm not saying that happens to everybody, but it happens far too often to risk leaving the church and taking away that hedge of protection that you get from the fellowship of the Lord's body. This is a very simple proposition. Christians do not grow without the church. And that's a fact no matter how it goes. Christians are not designed to grow without the church. It's it's like taking a um, a plant, uh, taking a thirsty plant, taking it away from water, taking a tree away from water if you could do that. Uh, a, a tree that's planted by the water thrives because of the nourishment. Or you take a plant and you put it into a closet where it can't get sunlight, what's it going to do? Well, it's not going to grow. Soon it'll wither and die. Well, these are reasons to be members of the Lord's Church. I could give you more, but the biggest one I think that really counts more than any of the others is just by looking at the New Testament to see that there is not one example of anyone in the New Testament who became a Christian that did not become a part of the church. They couldn't because they were always baptized and baptism belongs to the church. Now, I have been asked about this before, and I had this sermon, of course, you know, as we know, we, I, I work on these sermons months before, but it was interesting to me that last Sunday night, a Tate came to me and uh, asked me about the Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, as I said, I already had this message prepared, but I thought that was well, kind of strange that that question would come up, and I'm going to answer this tonight, but many people ask, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? What church was he a part of? Well, I would say first that he was baptized ...under the authority of the Jerusalem church, that is, Philip went there to baptize him. It's the common thing that we do with missionaries, that uh, when a missionary baptizes someone on a foreign field... ...they they come under the watch care of the church that sent out that missionary. So, yes, well, what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch? Uh, We don't have any record that he became a member of a church after he went home. Well, in fact, we don't have uh, anything that tells us anything about the Ethiopian eunuch after he went back to his home... But we do know this, that the gospel spread very quickly into Africa. And this is where the Ethiopian eunuch was from. And I have no doubt, and historians have no doubt, that with the rapid spread of the gospel to that part of the world, that he soon became part of a church there in Ethiopia after becoming, of course, baptized under the authority of the Jerusalem church. But if, if we threw that example out as, as being the aberration of this, that regardless of what happens to him, we have plenty of evidence throughout the New Testament that the, in the letters of Paul and of John and Peter and Jude, that the expectation for Christians is to be a member of the church. And this is just simply not in the apostle's mind to consider that there is Christianity without the church. And this is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 321, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. This is the place where Christ receives his glory. That's the design of the New Testament church. It's in the will and the purpose of God, and we needn't think that we can go around God's purpose and achieve the same results. Now, I'd like to consider for a few minutes the next way the church gives illumination. Our first point of discussion is the illuminating light of the gospel, and the New Testament is clear. The gospel is committed to the church. So in relation to that, secondly, the the world has no light outside of the church. Churches must be strong and true to the doctrines of the faith because the world will never see Christ without the gospel that has been committed to the church. Evangelism is under the purview of the church. Christ gave no other organization the commission. He gave no individual responsibility for his program in the world. Now, I want you to hear me out on this, because I'm not saying that individual Christians can't evangelize. You know, we would never teach that. In fact, we teach it's your duty to evangelize people with the gospel. But what I am saying is that evangelism should always be done under the authority of the church. Now, you can plug previous comments into this that, uh, and learn that skipping the church is not going to lead to fruitful evangelism. Skipping the church will not lead to converts that sustain growth after receiving Christ. Well, how do do we know that's not true? Well, we have plenty in the New Testament to tell us, but all that we need to do is to look at the actual commission that Christ gave. Now, we're all familiar with this. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world Amen. Now, I want to emphasize first, this is a church commission, not an individual one. Now, certainly, each of the apostles was an individual, we know that, but the commission was not given to them as individuals. It was given to them as they were together, the first church of Jesus Christ. And we can see it in the commission itself, because Christ said, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the world. Or uh, translation is, even unto the end of the age, unto the end of the church age. So when he says, unto the end of the world, he means, means the church age, from the time that he ascended into heaven until he comes back again. And he promised that he would be with the disciples all of that time. And it's obvious that he meant more than he would be with them until they died. As individuals, all of them would die within 60 years of the ascension. None of them would be alive until the end of the church age. So there's another thing to notice about this promise. You you remember that Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Why wouldn't it? Because he said, I will be with the church until the end of the age. Now these apostles would all be dead men very soon. But the church is a living organism. It lives on until Christ returns. And so we establish then the only way the promise can be true, the only way the commission runs true or rings true, is if it was given to the disciples as they are the church of the living God. They were set in the church first and their doctrine still lives on today. Though they're dead, their doctrine lives on in the church today. So the commission that Christ gave was to the church. The commission lives in the church, and there's no other group anywhere that you'll find in Scripture that this commission was given to. So the commission then rules out any other authority for the gospel but the church. So we resist this, that anyone outside of the church has that authority. So when we support missionaries, we always want to know, who is your sending church? Who gave you the authority to go out and preach? The commission begins with go. That's the command to evangelize. Then what immediately comes after the going? Well, it says, teach them. That's the command to give them the saving gospel of Christ. And then when they're converted, what do you do? Next is you baptize them. Who has the authority to baptize? I hope you can answer it now. The church. The church. It's a church ordinance. Nobody else can baptize. And then the commission goes on from there. It says, teach them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. And this is what we have in the New Testament letters that are written by Paul and others. They are expansions on the things that Christ taught during his personal ministry. Now, we noted in the First Thessalonian series that it was evident that when Paul preached in Thessalonica... He must have had much to say in that original trip about the second coming, taking it from Old Testament scriptures. Now You you remember in the beginning of chapter 5, Paul said, I don't need to write to you about the times and the seasons of Christ's return. And the question is, well, why? why? Why didn't he need to write to them? Well, the reason is that he taught them before. So all that he really needed to do was to clarify what he said to them before. Teach them to observe all things. That would be issues concerning sanctification, issues about church doctrine. Now, notice in the end of First Thessalonians, he gave a prescription for church worship. That's what we're studying on Sunday mornings right now. In First Timothy and Titus, there are instructions for pastors and deacons. In First Corinthians, there are more instructions for church decorum. You see, at the center of this, always in these letters, there is the church. The commission is a church commission. The context is always in the church. Well, here in, in the end of our message tonight, I want to relate an experience that I had as a young man just as an example of what I'm talking about. And what I have to say now is, is not uh, to tear anybody down. It's not to It's not to put some organization down for all the good that they do. But I only tell you this to tell you, i show you how things can go wrong when the authority of the gospel is taken out from under the local church. Most of you are familiar with the Gideons. Uh, this is an organization that's done much good throughout the world. They put Bibles in the hands of many people that read these and they've been drawn to faith in Christ. And it's a very good thing because God can use just a copy of his word that's put into the hands of a lost sinner and bring that person to salvation. Well, you know, some people would ask, this morning in our, in our class we were looking at Romans chapter 10, and uh, there it says, how are people going to hear if they don't have a preacher? And you say, well, how do people, uh, how can people be saved if they don't have a preacher? All you got to do is put a Bible in their hands. Is that possible? Does that work? Well, I think that it does. God uses the scriptures. I mean, how many times have you heard of someone who said, well, uh, I was given a gospel tract. And I read the gospel tract and I was brought to faith in Jesus Christ through that, through that tract that someone gave me. Well, are we going to say that that tract is more powerful than the word of God itself? So certainly, you put a Bible in somebody's hands and the Holy Spirit uses that to convict them uh, in their heart of their, that they are a lost sinner and they, and they read that and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, that's a valid conversion and, and the, the Bible can be used that way. And so you say, well, who is the preacher in that instance? Well, in effect, the preacher is the one who handed that person the Bible. Didn't really have to give them an explanation. Just give them the Bible to read. Although I don't suggest that's the only method that you use. Just go around passing out Bibles. But that works and people can get saved that way. And, and uh, if it's not that person, then maybe you extend it a little bit further. And you say, well, it's the publisher who published that Bible and made it available for people to read. See, the Holy Spirit can speak to a person's heart simply by him reading the word of God. And surely we have to say that God's word has that much power that the actual presence of a human being is not indispensable to people being saved. So I say, yes, Gideons. I mean, this is their main purpose. They pass out Bibles, and it's a very good thing. But I want to qualify the issue just a little bit uh, about where I ran into uh, some difficulty with this. Uh, Back when I was a very young man and before I became a pastor, I was a member of the Gideons. Now, you can't be a Gideon if you are a pastor. It's a layman's organization, so this is back before I became a pastor. So back when when I was in my 20s, actually, I was a, a member of the Gideons. And I had problems that developed when I was assigned to a Gideon camp. Now, this, is, this is what they do. You, you get uh, uh, mixed in with different groups. Our city was a fairly large city, so there were many of these Gideon camps throughout the city. And I was put into one of the uh, Gideon camps, and I was expected to meet and to pray with other Gideons. And whenever we were given the opportunity passing out Bibles, we were to evangelize. Now, the problem that I had is that in the Gideon camp that I was a member of, there were people that were in the Church of Christ. At that time, my, my dad and I were very heavily engaged with the churches of Christ in our, in our area. We were debating them. We were refuting their false doctrines. And perhaps you didn't know this about them. In fact, there's a, there's a church of Christ just not far from here down on Petaluma Hill Road. And maybe you didn't know this about them, but the church of Christ, they're, they're Pelagians. They deny the penal substitutionary atonement. They deny original sin. They deny inherent depravity. They deny God's election of sinners to salvation. They deny perseverance and preservation of the saints. They affirm that for a person to be saved, they must be baptized. And in baptism, they actually contact the blood of Christ in the water. And that's the way that you get saved. You contact the blood of Christ in the water. And then you're cleansed by the water. So in other words... Their view of salvation is much like Roman Catholics in this area. We call that sacerdotalism. And what it means is that a person can't be saved without human hands actually being put on him. It's the same idea that you have with the priest who gives the sacraments and, and so forth. You have to have a priest involved. Well, they would say, well, you've got to have somebody to baptize you and put you under the water. So human hands, in that sense, must touch you before you can be saved. When you look at their beliefs, they're not nearly as nuanced as Roman Catholics are in many areas. But the outcome of this is the same. They believe in a works justification and they believe that a person keeps himself in the grace of God. You listening here, I think you would all agree with me, that is very serious. That is very serious heresy. You know, I, I've read a lot of things about when do you call people a heretic? And you'd be careful about calling people heretics because they disagree with you. No, these people are heretics. Everything that I've just told you is heretical doctrine. It's not the gospel of Christ. And so here's where I had my problem. I said, I am not going to meet with, I am not going to pray with, I'm not going to evangelize with people that are in the churches of Christ and help them spread their false gospel. So I maintained that what Gideon should do is stick with passing out Bibles And don't put people out there that teach a false gospel because a false gospel always sends people to hell. Now, what's the the other side of this? Well, the other side is that there are many, many good Gideons and many of them shudder at the thought of what I've just told you and they don't want that to go on in their camps because they understand the gospel of Christ. They have a statement of faith that they go by and, and their beliefs that they stick by and they would support none of what I've just said. But the problem is, there's not something in place to prevent it. So I believe that the Gideons overstep their bounds when they evangelize. Now, if the local church sends out a Gideon, then I've got a different attitude towards that. That's a different story. But as far as I know, Gideons don't usually ask for church authority. I've heard some of them say, and this is one of their standard lines, that the Gideons are an arm of the church. I can't find anything in the Bible that says the church has arms or even needs arms. The church can do its work by itself without Christ as the head. So I don't need to reach out to other organizations to take over what Christ commissioned his church to do. Now I'll say that this is not criticism for criticism's sake. I love many of the men that I met in the Gideons. They do what they do with a different understanding than I I have. Most of them are good, godly men. They have very sincere hearts. But I'm telling you that all churches are not the same. We've got to be careful about this. All do not preach the true gospel of Christ. Parachurch organizations are not even given the authority to tell you who is true and who is not. You know why? We read it in 1 Timothy 3.15. Because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth so it's to the church that you go to get that determination so here that's my problem somewhere along the line somebody stepped out beyond church authority and it doesn't work God doesn't intend for it to work that way because he does his work through the New Testament church and I would say it'd be quite a shame if we needed someone else to do the work that we're supposed to be doing because we won't do it ourselves So it's not just Gideons. The same applies to other organizations that act without church authority. No one has the right to evangelize but the church. Oh, if you ask, has anyone ever been saved through the work of a parachurch organization? I would say absolutely. Of course they have. Just mention the Gideons. They pass out Bibles. Very good thing. People have been saved by that. Sometimes God intervenes. God can save anybody that he wants to save. But I can say this. That's not the ordinary means. If it were, it would lessen the importance of the church. If, if we can do God's work without the church, then we don't need the church. Now, I know the other side of this is the Gideons have come to me. They've asked the church to help sponsor passing out Bibles. And I will say this, I don't have a problem with that. You come to me and say, will your church pray as we pass out these Bibles, will you, will you pray that people will reach with the gospel of Christ? Will you sponsor the passing out of Bibles? Might even some of the men of your church be members of the Gideons? And I'd say, you give us the church authority, call on the church to help you with it. Then I'd say, yes, we can do that because it becomes the authority that we give our own members to pass out Bibles, not the authority of, a, of another organization. But here's another thing I learned about the Gideons in our area that, that really endears me to them. And that is, they, they're good men and they tell me that they regularly have prayer meetings for me and my wife. They, they know that my wife is sick and it's problematic for our church because of that. It's a big issue. And so they every time that they meet, they let me know that they're praying for us. I get cards and letters from them telling me that they're praying for us. And I very, very much appreciate that. My issue here centers on the gospel itself and who has the responsibility for it. So that's where I differ if we differ. These, these are things that I tell you. I mean, I, I keep telling you I'm a strong church man, and I'm going to stick by that. And I think it's my duty to try and protect our church. So looking at the lampstand, I mentioned this last week, that, that nobody took the lampstand out of the tabernacle. They didn't say, you know, here's a real good light. We could roast hot dogs by this and we'll just take that and do that with it and nobody took it and said you know I, I don't have a candle in my tent can I borrow the lampstand so I can see in my tent tonight you didn't do that and I said you know they didn't take it to a cave and say well we can't see in here get the golden lampstand let's uh, explore this cave a little bit there are a hundred different venues where the lampstand would have been useful to people but that was not its purpose its light was for the tabernacle God uses the light, and for us to be useful with the light, we must keep it in the church. I mean, the authority of it in the church. We respect the authority of God's intentions with his gospel. So worship in the tabernacle was a very specific thing. You remember what happened when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put strange fire in their censers God said, that's not the way we do things. That was a very simple thing, and God struck them dead. All of this tells me it's very best for God's people to stick to the instructions. Do it God's way, and we preserve the types and the figures of worship. I'm going to stop there. We'll cool the jets a little bit on that issue. and uh, My job, again, is to teach the church by the grace of God. I hope to protect it from harm and I'll do that as long as we serve Christ together here in the unity of the church and then the illuminating gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight understanding that we have great responsibility. Lord, uh, the gospel of Christ is the most important the most important message that can be told anywhere in this world at any time. People must hear it to be saved. And we thank you, Lord, that we're in the church where the gospel is upheld and where the commission has been given. Lord, help us to be true to that commission, to guard the truth of the gospel with our very lives if if it's necessary. Thank you for your people and for the understanding of the word tonight. Bless us, Lord, as we contemplate your death in the Lord's Supper this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928.